yeah, you can establish a series of rituals and of traditions that maybe even the meaning gets lost, especially if it then becomes just a, a way to aggregate people around, you know, sex parties and whatnot. So the meaning itself gets lost. Or it could even be that some people were still still knew about it. And, and, and as I told you before, you can use sex, you can use psychic energy, sexual energy to feed your magical rituals and to feed the entities, the egregores, that's the specific term. Produced and recorded at Pure Grain Studios. I'm Nathan Isaac, and this is Pinneroy. You know, you brought up this guy, Alexander Guterma. All right. And I read that name and the thing that you sent me this morning. And I thought there was something that was just kind of vaguely familiar about it. And I can't really say that I have any, you know, really sort of consciously remember him before, but I go, yeah, that looks kind of, kind of familiar. So I looked through, you know, I dug through some papers, which is usually what I do when something looks familiar. And I figured out where I'd come across it just in passing. Okay, just in passing. So, as you've mentioned, Guterma was a, eh, he was a swindler, a stock manipulator, you know, front companies, shell firms, the rest of it. You know, particularly active in the, in the 1950s. And, and he got into some legal complications. If you look around in the late 50s, you'll find that his name ends up, he's involved in deals with a guy named Lowell Burrell, B-I-R-R-E-L-L. Okay, he was, it's the same you know, same breed of cat, you know, speculator, swindler. Well, that's where I'd run across it. I'd seen his name connected to Lowell Burrell's, and I knew who Lowell Burrell was because then he connects to another swindler. <laughs> There's another, a guy named Stuart B. Hops. You ever run across that name? No, not that Okay. So how did I run into him? Okay. It had nothing to do with looking into reinsurance or anything else. It had to do... With in 1950, 1951, Stuart Hops lived in Palm Springs, California. And, you know, that was sort of the winter getaway for people from Hollywood. You know, I mean, if you were going to have some kind of like, you know, big cult sex orgy, I can't think of a better place to have it than in Palm Springs, which is also conveniently close to both Hollywood and Vegas. All right. So. Stuart Hops was a big cheese in Palm Springs, and he hosted a birthday party for his wife and invited 200 guests. And this had, you know, Hollywood types, other scammers and everybody. This was a big party. It was covered in the press. And this is how I found out about it. Well, one of the people who was either a guest or an employee there for this birthday party, performing as an Indian dancer was a guy by the name of George Hunt Williamson. I've came across, right. across this. Thing. Okay. And 
if you run across George Hunt Williamson, he's, he's, he's most famous as a guy who was one of the early flying saucer contactees. All right. So he palled around with George Adamski. And, and so Williamson is the guy that I'm actually interested in. All right. And, I, you know, I'm not really that interested in UFOs, frankly, but I'm interested in Williamson because that guy is a piece of work. I mean, he lies about virtually everything. So but there's always some reason why people are lying about it. So here's Williamson, who's at least temporarily an employee of Stuart Hopps, who's then linked to these other guys. And it's, it's like ships passing in the night. And the only thing I would prove is that it shows you how these sort of weird things of, of synchronicity comes up. Because before Guterres, I mean, just the other day, I was sort of going over this stuff about Burrell and Hops and Williamson, and, and here this drops in. So there you have it. Synchronicity strikes again. Or it's a small world. I don't know what else. But that's just really crazy that they had encountered George Hunt Williamson. Because, um, I mean, I'm sure you guys had seen this, but, I mean, he was involved with um, William Dudley Paley, who was um, the founder of the Silver uh, Silver Shirt, Silver Legion, which was, a you know, essentially a fascist organization in the U.S. during the uh, 30s and 40s. And he had been uh, convicted of sedition, essentially, around the you know outbreak of the Second World War and had done about five years in prison for it. But um, he was also obsessed with a a lot of esoteric stuff, periodology, near-death experiences. He later got into the whole UFO thing uh, in the 50s, which is how um, George Hunt Williamson and him got hooked up. Um, but the other thing about Williamson that's really strange, uh, I suppose not entirely surprising, is that he seems like he was uh, um, one of the Chandlers for the Nine, actually. Um, yeah, that kind of went back to the 50s when Puharic and Arthur Young were in Mexico. And they had been um, confronted by this couple called the Loftheads or Logheads or something weird like that. But um, they had been working with the Chandler, um, who turned out to be Hunt Williamson, who had basically uh, gotten a message from the Nine that they had been dis- uh, instructed to deliver to Piharic and Young while they were in Mexico at the time. There's a long history of communication with non-human intelligences. People have long believed that they were speaking to gods, or aliens, or spirits. It's part and parcel of the human experience to seek out and try to communicate with something greater. I think in this story, and in what we've been experiencing, we began to wonder if something was trying to communicate with us that if if not directly that there was an intelligence of some sort that had orchestrated all of these events all of the intersections between Dan's the Vaughn and Hellier and the discovery of the Mount Victory Mine and Alexander Guterman And all these things continually stacked on top of each other. And it's there's no way to deny that these things were not in some way, some type of structure, some type of narrative. And that they do relate to one another in some unseen way. And and obviously, that's really what this investigation became. It was looking into why 
all of these things that seem so unconnected all intersected here in Somerset and specifically with us. And so this idea that there could possibly be intelligences or an intelligence or a phenomena or something interacting with us, something that we were interacting with. And it all sounded very similar to me, to this story of the nine, because all for all of human history, we've been trying to communicate with other intelligences. We've been trying to contact ETs through the ESETI project. We've been listening for communications. We spend millions, billions of dollars listening for communications. And again, one of the best modern stories that's been documented, well documented, that connects to so many moments in human history is the story of the nine. Here's Stephen Snyder giving us a bit more insight. Well, you know, I mean, officially the story of the nine started allegedly in 1951 when Andrea Puharic encountered a, a certain Dr. D.G. Benoit. Um, there was a lot of dispute, of course, for years whether Benoit was uh, an actual real person or if he had been something that uh, was constructed by Puharic, though it does seem pretty conclusive that he was, in fact, a real individual. Um, it's interesting to note, though, Chris Knowles of The Secret Son has uh, pointed out before that the whole saga of the nine does bear an uncanny uh, resemblance to a story that appeared in Amazing Adventures uh, called Son of the Sun in 1947. And it was published, uh, it was uh, edited, the magazine at the time was edited by the uh, legendary Raymond Palmer, which in and of itself is interesting in this context because Palmer was, of course, the guy who also published the Shaver Mysteries and it helped, um, you know, allegedly edit the Shaver Mysteries. Some people think he wrote the things, but uh, in the context of Hellier, though, that's kind of an interesting sink. Um, but anyway, the story came out in 47. And uh, it was written by a certain Millen Cook, I believe, who was potentially uh, a pseudonym or potentially used the pseudonym Alexander Blade. And um, this was all part of uh, this individual came out of kind of a West Coast circle of metaphysics and that type of thing. And there's some speculation that Benoit might have actually been part of this circle. And that might have been the first time that he had encountered this whole concept of the nine. But, um, you know, we don't really know in that point, but it is an interesting series of coincidences there. But as the official story goes, Puharic meets Benoit, who's this, you know, Indian guru and so forth in 51. He becomes interested in him. He wants to study him. And then they ultimately have the uh, first of the two really famous seances with them. Uh, the first one was in New Year's Eve, 1952. Uh, there was only a few individuals there. I think Puharic and maybe one of his lab assistants or something like that. And then later in 53, they had the really famous one with a lot of the Yankee blue bloods and that type of thing. Uh, of course, Puharic himself is a very interesting figure. He uh, had often alleged for years that he was part of the, you know, the CIA behavior modification stuff. He said 
that he'd actually been brought into this in the 19, uh, 1947 by the Navy is what he described as Project Penguin. Uh, that's confounded researchers for years because nobody's found any evidence of a Project Penguin. Uh, the Navy did, however, start a project in 47 called Pelican, which did go into a lot of this, you know, kind of woo-woo stuff. Uh, so it's quite likely that uh, that was actually what Piharic was uh, subtly referring to. Uh, he had set up this roundtable group uh, in 1947 to study this, you know, strange phenomenon. He had also uh, been kind of turned on to this stuff by Warren McCulloch, who was, of course, as uh, you guys are aware, a famous cyberneticist. So there was kind of that uh, cybernetics connection as well to all of this. But anyway, he starts up this foundation. He gets uh, early support from um, Vincent Astor's sister. I can't remember her name now off the top of my head, but, uh, you know, Yankee blue blood to the hilt. Vincent uh, had actually been FDR's original spy master at the onset of uh, hostilities for the Second World War. He had been part of kind of a private Anglo-American intelligence network known as The Room even before then. So, I mean, he had a lot of deep connections in and of himself. It's possible Biharic was also getting some funding from the Navy from this Roundtable Foundation and what have you. So, I mean, it was uh, definitely a really spooky setup in more ways than one. Um, they have these seances, right? Okay. With Vinoid, uh, the New Year's Eve one, the later one with all the other Yankee Blue Bloods, the DuPonts, all those other types. And they're contacted by these beings who tell them that they are the Grand Nid of ancient Egypt, the nine deities, that type of thing. And, um, then, and then from there, they uh, lay it out on the line for them. In fact, they're actually uh, extraterrestrials, but extraterrestrials that now exist outside of uh, time and space, effectively. The stories have changed a bit over the years from being consciousness locked into a spaceship or something hovering over the Earth to just being disembodied consciousness, uh, whatever. <laughs> so anyway, uh, they get this revelation from them. They tell them that they have this mission, that type of thing. And uh, from there on out, Puharic uh, continues to maintain a fascination with this for the next you know at least 20 years or so he potentially seeds this into the popular culture through star trek um of course gene roddenberry uh really became obsessed with this stuff as uh great christopher knowles is laid out as a this is not addressed in the stargate conspiracy and uh of course by the late great philip copens as well so that's kind of the overall gist the backdrop of the nine and how they came into being Because of the documents that ended up in our hands and how they seem to strangely relate to everything that we were researching and all of these strands into Guterma and the occult, we had to ask the question, was it possible that there was an intelligence operation of some sort, as crazy as that sounds? Was it possible that some group, some clandestine group, were fucking with us or playing some type of game? As Richard Spence says, was there some kind of flim-flammery going on? I mean, t to be honest, when, you know, my first impression, my first reaction to all of this, because I'm, you know, even though I'm interested in this kind of thing, I'm, I'm a hard sell, all right? It would take a lot to convince me of this, and generally it has. I'll, I'll entertain the possibility. So, you know, what I see is flimflammery, right? And a lot of people who are basically gullible, being manipulated by someone else, you know, you want to believe you got them in, into that state. 
But then it still comes back to the question, well, is there some greater purpose to the flimflammery than just flimflammery? The thing about stage magic, as opposed to, let's say, rich, you know, magic magic, is that stage magic is a kind of crude imitation of the other, arguably. But all you have to do with stage magic is you have to learn how to do the trick. Okay? Once you learn the trick, in other words, once you don't just learn how to do it, but do it enough where you can't do it wrong. Okay, that's the trick, as someone has told me. Not just doing it until you do it right, but doing it until you can't get it wrong. Then you can control that every time. All right? You you can, you know, once you got the trick down, you can go on and perform the trick because you don't have to deal with any other consciousness doing it. On the other hand, if you wanted to do something similar with the aid, I don't know, of a demon, then you have to get their cooperation which could be trickier to do. I mean, you know, even if you're trying to get an animal to behave, that's difficult enough. But, you know, but in this case, see, the the fakery gives you absolute control over it, whereas real magic never gives you absolute control over it. So if the audience doesn't know any better, well, then give them the fake. It looks exactly the same to them. Our investigation into cults in this area led us to discover articles referencing a place called Oakwood. The Oakwood facility was an, an experimental facility built in 1973 in Somerset, Kentucky. That facility was to be covered in an NBC Dateline piece about how the mental health industry in America had taken a turn for the better, finally. And these were to be new policies, new ways of thinking about treating mental health. And so this experimental facility, Oakwood, was built here in Somerset, Kentucky. The design of the place, the layout of the place, the colors, the symbology, everything that went into the creation of Oakwood was significant. But within six months of opening, there were allegations from an anonymous letter that there were members of the faculty that were part of a witch cult performing rituals in the tunnels beneath the facility and burning symbols into the backs of some of the residents. Rod Zimmerman, who you've heard recently in the podcast, it turns out his father took over after the scandal and after they fired most of the staff, including the director. Rod's father was the director that replaced the prior. Here's his recollection of that odd time. Um, early 70s, I think it was around 74, Oakwood just about got shut down because third shifters were having sex parties. They were having seances. Uh, they were having drug parties at in the tunnels at Oakwood. A lot of the residents were being, you know, they weren't being taken care of because no one was watching them. One of the kids that was a resident who had an extreme fear of water 
They couldn't bathe him in a tub. They had to sponge bathe him. He was terrified of water. If you go from the back of Oakwood toward Oak Hill Road, where they have the little uh, uh, greenhouse and the big trolley car or whatever, the, there's a pond there. This kid was found face down in the pond, allegedly drowned. Now, the kid was terrified of water. If he had gotten loose, why would he have walked toward a pond? That was one of the questions that I always ask. There was a shakeup of the administrators. Everything there got reworked. But the the talk around town around 74, 75 was that, uh, oh, they work third shift. Well, boy, can they tell you something. They're doing seances. There's pentagrams on the floors of these tunnels. They're taking the meds from the residents and divvying them up. You know, it was just, it was crazy. I just don't know what to think about that. Like, the Oakwood thing was always sort of, like, in the back of my mind, like, man, that'd be the perfect place. It, it, that didn't hit the papers. What was going on, that all came because I was there. Um, but I would like to now do some research and go back to 73, 74 and see if there was something. Because I was just... 10 years old, 10, 11 years old. Uh, something happened at Oakwood. There was a big shakeup. They changed everything out. It all started when the kid was found dead. And then when they started investigating how he got out, why he drowned, if he had a terrible fear of water, that's when they started digging. And that's when they found the, the third shifters partying in the tunnels at Oakwood. Not only is the Oakwood thing a viable channel for the weirdness. It's also the earliest thing. Like this predates the satanic panic by 10 years. You know, this is before there's devil worshipers yeah, running around. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's the, you wouldn't hear about that. This is like a personal question. You don't have to answer it, but like, do you have experience with drugs and like LSD stuff like that? Okay. So like, here's what I think. Like we're looking at this the wrong way. We're saying that the mental health situation is a consequence of some other problem, like right? Right. But if you look at it the opposite way, that the mental health issue is generative of the knowledge that you're getting. So, like, schizophrenia and, and tripping on LSD are indistinguishable on an MRI. They are the same thing. It's literally the same state of your brain. So, like, if you are in a mental health place... And there's schizophrenic sort of channeling the truth of the universe, right? And it's it's fucked up. But that's how Carl Jung begins to question why things are the way they are, is only because of his issue his dealings with mental health. It's like maybe these massive mental health institutions you see weird shit happening, right? You're like doing the rounds at, 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 on third shift. You, it's depressing. Like I know people that have worked there and everybody that I know have worked there have like gotten divorced. Like they, they had affairs while they were there or whatever. And it's like, it's dark because it's hard to cope with what you're seeing. Right. So like you combine that with legitimate sort of like tripping, right. And all of a sudden, you got people doing high magic in the basement of Oakwood because they're channeling these things. Right. Like, if you look at any of the rituals, like if you look at John D., for example, and how he gets 
to contact the Enochian spirits, it's through divination originally that he even finds a way to do it, right? And so this like schizophrenia and LSD being the same thing, right? It's like it's always happening around you. And magic is referred to as the coherences, like things that are things that are related that don't seem to be related, right? And so like I think that that there's a connection between the state of schizophrenia and like being exposed to it in a, like a massive level. I'm, I'm just using schizophrenia as an example, but being exposed to it at like a really concentrated level that may be a way of channeling this information for doing these rituals that ends up spilling out into the community because they're people working at Oakwood. Um, well, but, you know, you know, you know the idea of the oak king and the holy king, which is basically in 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 paganism, the idea of the well of Pan having two uh, identities: the young holy king and the old, sorry, the young oak king and the older holy king. And during the, the the wheel of the year, they battle, and it's the idea of basically Pan, which is all, but it it, it constantly renew himself. So oakwood. Yeah, I mean, there, there. If you want to look of a connection, we can see a connection. Right, right. This is circ- this is circumstantial, of course. It, it, it's it's always nice to think about these things, but yeah, there is a connection. After Marco told me about the relationship between Pan and the Oakwood King, I went to talk to Dan about that connection and about what it meant, especially because of the story of Oakwood here in the 1970s and the stories of a witch cult and magic being performed in the tunnels beneath Oakwood and the whole controversy. I wanted to know what Dan thought about that and if he thought somehow it was related to Pan and the Fawn and what it could mean to the entire story. I really need to tell you the story about about Pete's Spring, about the spring over there, which has a supernatural connection to uh, Nigeria. So <laughs> we'll just have to come back to that one, okay? You know, but for the meantime, I want to to address the Oakwood thing through just a very minor observation. I'm going to change the names to protect the innocent, <laughs> if they are indeed innocent. <laughs> Never thought about it this way before. I'll have to say that. Okay, so there was this, when I was uh, in my late teens, there was, a, there was a group of people that hung out and partied some together based somewhat on this crazy strange guy, Mike, uh, Jesse Sims and his brother Mike Sims. And Jesse had a leather factory here. He was kind of like a post, kind of hippie, hippie entrepreneur kind of guy at one level, but he had gone to college and studied psychology. He knew how to psych everybody out, whatever, too. He had, he had a head shop in downtown Somerset in, guess where? Kind of square, kind of square. He had a head shop down there. <laughs> Record store and a head shop down there in kind of square. What years is this? This would have been 70s, like late 70s, okay? So that, 
it was one reason that I went down to Cundiff Square, actually, because I was old enough to to want to get records anyway. I didn't really, the paraphernalia, I don't think I ever bought any, but I met, I knew Jesse separately from that because I had a friend who was Cindy Cisco. I could mention Cindy because she didn't come in the story otherwise. She was the tough girl in the school, the one, and she really liked me and considered me to be her close friend. And so she, like, put out the word, if you mess with him, you know, I'm going to cut you up after class. And there was nobody in that school that was going to mess with her. So I had protection when I was in school, which is good because a lot of people gave me shit, you know, but they do better than to cross a certain line because Cindy would come down on like a ton of bricks. And her brother was probably would have been right in there with her. I didn't actually know him or friends with him, but I'm sure it's, Cindy's toughness was backed up. But she worked at this leather factory that Jesse Sims had. It was in the old schoolhouse out on, on Old 80, right there before you get to the intersection just off the road. There's an old schoolhouse, and he turned it into this leather factory where they punched out. The, they had special dies cut to make purses and belts and things like that, and they punched them out and then laced them and sprayed them with different dyes, colored dyes to color them, laced them up and made them into purses and belts and key fobs and anything you might be able to make out of leather. Um, and so I was hired to do drawings, and the drawings were sent to this place, turned into metal plates, and they punched into them drawings of elves sitting on toadstools and... I mean, you know, just whatever <laughs> things I could think up, you know, that's, that was my after school. I didn't even have to drive. They, Jesse picked me up after school. I went over and worked for a couple hours drawing designs and showing them how to paint the designs. And they had high school kids. It was high school kids that wore it. And this guy who was a friend of mine who also worked there and worked in the press punching the things out. Um, and they, all these people did a lot of acid together. And on the peripheries of that, Jesse's next door neighbor was this, this girl who had the hots for me and was chasing me. But at that point in time, I was not having anything of that whatsoever. I just, you know, I at first I thought she was fine, and then I was like, oh God, I mean, she won't give up. So there was kind of that. But she had gone to um, Anderson College in Indiana, a religious university, amongst one of the groups that sent their people there to be trained up to be preachers or whatever they were going to become. Um, it's this weird cult in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, this guy that was intended to be the leader of that cult. And it was a cult. Yeah, it, I can tell you all about that one because I went and infiltrated that one. You gotta tell me that. Yeah, I, 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 that story where I went undercover. I'll tell you that in Jackson, Mississippi. Let's just say I spent a year one month there. <laughs> really did. <laughs> I'll never forget a second of that. That was... That was be passively weird. That was beyond any. Now I think about it, that might have been the weirdest thing I've ever done in my life. You know, it was. Anyways, there was a young man that came out of that world and was sent to Anderson University to be the new leader of the church. 
and uh, he did some drugs while he was there. And got all tuned in, an earnest young man, you know. Plenty of plenty of inner torture, torture and turmoil, considering where he was coming from. I understand. Um, and he um, had a fling with the daughter of the dean there, I guess, who was living here. And uh, so he stopped in Somerset, Kentucky, to see her. And while he was here, it our lives intersected. And here's how they intersected due to Oakwood. <laughs> wow. Okay, so this, this, this woman, young woman, worked at Oakwood at that point in time. And I had occasion to have conversations with her because we did, we're in the same group of people, plus she was chasing after me and sort of used any excuse to to talk about things too, you know. So this was an area of interest that I did have and it was something to talk about. But and she felt like I was somebody who would understand, I'm sure. Um, her viewpoint about the residence at Oakwood then was uh, I had never run into anything like it. Um she believed that they were divinities, that they were, or that they were like, they were of superior intelligence. They came, they were, they were like aliens from another world that were, that were making contact here in order to teach us important things, you know, which human beings don't yet understand about life. <laughs> I can't believe Are you this. serious? I am as serious as a right, heart attack. All right. All right. That, I mean, I'm just telling you right. what I what I I'm just relating to you, you what I heard. Let me try to go back so that I can speak clearly about what happened then. It was justifiably changed my life entirely. I will have to say that. I mean, I hadn't thought of that as being the pivot point of this, but definitely within a matter of days or whatever. Actually, no, that very day was the most pivotal point in my artistic career in many ways. It would lead directly to um, the Stone Man and the Secret Commonwealth, though I could not, up to this point, see any reason why that would be the case. <laughs> But I see it now. Oh, boy, do I see it. Okay, so I thought at the time that she, this was just another kind of come on thing that she had for me because she was trying to get in thick with me. And I was a very elusive person. I like, I, I, that just was the way I was at that point in time. I, people did not know my inner life or what I did or whatever. I just didn't share it with outside people at all. You know, I had friends. Um, <clears throat> I had some close friends. I didn't feel that I lacked friends at all. But I didn't really share my internal life with, with other people. So um, she was like, you've got to come and you've got to come and meet them. You know, you have to come and see these people because it's not what people think. You know, it's they're not what people think they are. You know, they're really 
they really know much more than we know. So I didn't even think about it, you know, until the, the I was so irresponsible, until the day came that I was supposed to go and do it. And she like called me up and was like, um, you know, are you, are you coming to, are you coming to do it? And I was like, oh, I, I asked all my, I didn't drive at that point in time. I was like, I asked all my friends if, you know, which I had probably two that had cars, you know, I asked all my friends, you know, if somebody would give me a ride down there, and, and I couldn't get a ride. The truth, I had asked my friends if they would give They were like, you are out of your fucking mind. There is no way on earth I would go to that place. So I thought I knew what I was going to be seeing when I got there. And, you know, I thought, oh, I can... Yeah, sure, I can do something with that. But then I didn't want to do it. So she said, well, <clears throat> just hold on, and I'm going to call a friend of mine to come and pick you up. You know. So I was like, because I always say yes to everything. I was like, okay, sure, you know. I thought, oh, I hung up and I thought, oh, God, I thought this was bad before. This was like in early October. It was really pretty day, you know, it was pretty fall days and the leaves were just beginning to turn. Like I was playing to paint all day in my studio, you know, and I was like, every time I try to get something done, something interrupts it. And now, as if it wasn't bad enough that she was wanting me to come and do this thing, she's going to call some crazy-ass friend of hers, some goofy-ass friend of hers to come and pick me up. Okay, well, here's going to be the deal about that. I am not talk. I'm not saying a word. I'm not talking. I'm not going to... You know, I'm just going to go and do this. I'm not interacting with this friend of hers because this whole thing about these inner higher beings from another dimension thing that are down there is just, that's just nuts, you know. She's nuts, and this is nuts, and I'm going to go and do my thing and get it over with, and, but I'm not talking. I'm not getting involved with this person. It's, this is kind of pep talks that I give myself, you know. So this guy rolls up in his car a little bit later and I get in with him. He was barefoot, you know. I was like, it was like impressed me because I didn't know anybody else besides myself that went barefoot, you know. He seemed nice enough. Persons went and I did this thing, you know, there. And here's what's weird about it. I don't remember him I don't remember him being there while I was doing it. But I know I came back with him here afterwards. I don't remember that he was. So maybe I was in another. They didn't let him into that part of Oakwood where I went into. You know, and it wasn't near the front. It was somewhere further. It was a place back further. In it. And I thought that she had said it was like a, would be like a fair or, you know, a carnival or a fair or something. <laughs> I think a carnival, it was going to be, or a, like an art fair or a carnival. I can't remember now. That was my impression. That's what it was going to be like. But when I got there, um, you know, and I took some paint and paper and stuff to have, there were some people um, 
crawling around in the grass eating popcorn. Not finding popcorn in the grass, like, instead of hunting Easter eggs, like crawling on hands and knees and eating popcorn out of the grass. And that's all that happened while I was there. That I remember. What do you... <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. You're saying when you got there, right? Yeah. You saw someone crawling. There were people. There were more people. than one person well, crawl, crawling around in the grass, eating popcorn out of the grass. And then you went to meet with these people. I ha- don't have any memory of that, of anything happening there except seeing the people with the popcorn and that Terry wasn't there with me. But... X was there with and, me. And, 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 I don't remember anything odd, but I don't remember anything. And then this dude brought you back here. He brought me back here. And when he got back he, here, um, I made a very strange decision indeed at that point in time. Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't joking about not opening myself up to strangers. Like at that point in time, I felt like I was myself was handling extremely esoteric situation in my studio, you know, that I had hermetically closed for my own reasons there, you know, because I was getting really important stuff done. I did not let everybody into that space, just anybody or everybody. I certainly didn't let people into my experimental world. But I totally didn't follow what I said I wasn't going to do, but at that point in time we had talked to each other and I found him to be a very unusual person indeed um you know and, and i liked him so ugh, i invited him to come down to the studio and even more than that uh, apropos of nothing um in my history of modern art book that i had down there i had a sheet of egyptian stamp acid that had, i had several hits of the Egyptian stamp. It was the one with the blue eye. The eye of Horus. <laughs> and I was like, hey, would you like to taste some acid? You know? So we took this acid, you know? And then I took him even more esoteric. And I had at that point in time a number of walks around here that went or all around the Dutton property and and other adjoining properties that I had inside and outside. So I had these walks that went all around through it that were all sort of my secret space, you know, that I went through. And I took him, you know, in through all this, which I wouldn't have taken the soul to that thing. I absolutely couldn't believe what Dan was telling me. I couldn't believe that that he had an experience at Oakwood in the 1970s, that he may have encountered these non-human intelligences and that they had somehow, in some way, possibly even set in motion some of the events that were occurring today. After all the things we had discovered, to have this piece of the story appear, this connection, especially because of the nine and this idea that there might be non-human intelligences attempting to meddle in human events and specifically in our lives. Was it an intelligence operation as Richard Spence suggested? 
when we started looking for answers, when we started to search to find who or what might be behind this, that's when we discovered that it was us. Penny Royal is written and produced by your host, Nathan Paul Isaac. Associate producers are Darian West and Kyle Cadell. Original musical score by Philip Clonch. Edited and mixed by Boone Williams. Sponsored by Jarfly Brewing Company and the International Paranormal Museum and Research Center. If you're interested in joining the investigation and diving deeper into the story, visit pennyroyalpodcast.com and support the show by becoming a member of the Liminal Lodge. Thanks for listening and keep digging.